The following is a conversation with Nathan Lynch about Australia, its economy and its culture, and how both are being eroded by an abundance of dirty cash washing through the system. Nathan Lynch is the author of The Lucky Laundry, how the Aussie economy got hooked on the world's dirtiest cash. Nathan also leads a team of experts who provide breaking news, deep analysis, and practical guidance in the global financial services sector. He manages Thomson Reuters' award-winning regulatory intelligence team across the Asia-Pacific region. In this conversation with Nathan, you can expect to hear about some of the following. Chinese capital flight, property, because it wouldn't be a conversation between two Australians without that being mentioned. Nathan's outlook and prediction for Australia's future. Money laundering in sport, which is particularly fascinating. And then as well, a bit of a red pill for offshore finance and much, much more as well. This is definitely a podcast that complements episodes 48 with Jim Henry, 51 with Bradley Hope, 78 with Oliver Bolo, 96 with Nicholas Jackson, and then even a little bit of 104 with John Perkins. And as well, it will complement more in the future as well. So I just wanted to say that for some extra reading if you're interested, but do please hang around to the end to hear my hopes for this podcast. And with no further ado, here is the brilliant Nathan Lynch. Lester Freeman from The Wire, jaded, scruffy, old wise detective said, if you follow the drugs, you get drug addicts and drug dealers. But when you start to follow the money, you don't know where the fuck it's going to take you. Beautiful, beautiful quote. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That is exactly, I mean, the following the drugs is a kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a pointless game really because if you for instance are you know i don't know detecting and intercepting 20 percent of the drug imports sort of coming into a country well the people that are supplying it will just bump it up by another 20 percent you know that their product is cheap at, at source so trying to track drugs and and prevent them from coming in it really is a uh, you know how how many decades we've been involved in the war on drugs now <laughs> whereas once you move to following the money you know uh, I mean, people don't get into the drug trade because they love giving people quality pharmaceutical experiences. <laughs> they get in there to make money and they are more concerned about losing their money than they are losing their product or their couriers or their mules or their staff. And so the money becomes the entire game. You know, uh, the drugs are just a conduit. And so it's that game of following the money that is really the intellectual battle of of the criminal world and you've got really smart people in the police coming up against really smart people in the underworld and they're engaged in this cat and rat game against each other and there's a sort of a relationship that gets formed as well between the you know the target and the cop and vice versa where uh you know i mean sometimes they'll say to you that they totally respect their target and they have to respect their target because uh you know you don't want to underestimate the sophistication and determination of the person you're trying to catch. So, you know, that's that's the essence of the, the follow the money game. And the people that operate in that world, you know, they are highly intelligent on both sides. And so I think in some ways that's why it becomes more interesting as a as a narrative subject than, you know, busting down doors and, and raiding drugs when, you know, really that's the sideshow to the true game, which is amassing wealth and buying lifestyles that are unimaginable, really. 
in the sort of prongs of following the money is money laundering and that whole sector is that the one prong that in, that is encapsulated by following the money or there are other considerations as well uh well it's all part of criminal intelligence right so money you know um finint is one part of intelligence but then obviously the you know, the authorities have a whole multitude of things that they can do. They've got human intelligence, they've got signals intelligence, they've got all of these things that they pull together uh, and try to use to their advantage. I mean, in the book, I go into the Anom Intercept, which was an incredible, you know, wild, ambitious, audacious, creative bit of policing to uh, get this this intercepted device in people's pockets. But then once they had that and they're seeing the communications and tapping it, you know, then then they're learning more stuff about how product moves and how money moves and how laundering's being done and whether syndicates are going to professional launderers or running their own stuff in-house. Uh, and it's a combination of both. So, yeah, I mean, you know, following the money is part of the part of the game. And, you know, you can focus on that because at the criminal intelligence level, you've got agencies that are just set up to do money laundering, the financial intelligence units. That's all they do. And then they've got thousands and thousands of private sector organisations that are legally compelled to supply them with intelligence. So you've kind of got this neat carve out where there's an industry there that's just looking at the money. That's the, the prong that they follow. But in reality, you know, that then is assembled by the partner agencies, whether they be tax authorities or, or um, drug agencies or police or whatever it might be, they're compiling the financial intelligence with everything else they've got in their, in their arsenal. So yeah, you know, uh, from a practitioner level, people will specialize in their field, but then that will be aggregated with many, many other sources of information. Mm. Uh, the, Capital flight from China is maybe the main source of this money that is being filtered throughout Australia, right? Laundered throughout Australia. Um, but interesting uh, point from the book and some interviews as well is that it's not all criminal proceeds that is coming out of China to be laundered through Australia. It's also just legitimate money. Like, can you talk about the problem of capital flight in China more generally? Mm, yeah, I mean, that's a... That's a confounding factor for Australian law enforcement and financial intelligence units because, you know, when, when you have capital controls in countries like China and Vietnam, that's not something that's reflected in our law. You know, we don't have capital controls and therefore it's not a predicate criminal offence for money laundering. So as far as Australia is concerned, if you're moving money out of China in excess of the $50,000 a year limit, that's not a problem for us and you know we won't we won't work with the ministry of public security or whoever it might be on those cases so the challenge from the uh overseas side china or vietnam is that well they're not getting cooperation on those matters for obvious reasons but then it works the other way as well so from the australian perspective or the western perspective when people are trying to get around those capital controls, they're driven into the arms of the underworld economy. They have to find a 
criminal banker or a gangster or a, a legal remittance provider or a casino or something to help them get that money out of out of the jurisdiction. It could have been perfectly legitimately earned, but they're driven into the underworld to move their money. And so that's where, from an Australian perspective or a Canadian or UK or whatever it might be, it's very hard to distinguish between legitimate funds that are going through the underground economy to get around capital controls or illegitimate funds. And so that really is, you know, it's just one of the many, many very difficult things in this world of financial intelligence that, uh, you know, makes it makes it very hard to do, makes it a real, a difficult and challenging, but also pretty fascinating and rewarding field of work for the people that work in it. Do you have any sense for raw numbers how much uh, capital flight comes out of China each year and then specifically how much comes through China, uh, sorry, through Australia? So you're only ever, with this whole field, you're only ever going to get estimates. And it's good to set that out at the start. The reason for that is that, you know, you have to be mindful that you simply don't know about the money that you're not detecting. So when criminal groups are successful, then there's no visibility. Their whole point is to make that money indistinguishable from legitimate money. So there are a number of different measures that can be used to look at the criminal economy uh, and all of them are going to be estimates to some degree. But what we do know is that internationally it's fairly well accepted that the criminal economy is between 2 and 5% of GDP. That's a pretty safe number. International or just China? Internationally, they're, they're the figures that are internationally accepted. So if you look at the Australian economy, you know, at $2 trillion a year, and then you think about that, you know, you, you look, the, the figures range, the, the scale of the Australian criminal economy, uh, official figures are always conservative because countries and governments want to create the impression that they've got this thing under control. And so their figures tend to be on the low side. So the Australian government will say that the criminal economy in Australia is worth about $36 billion a year. Uh, and that's the harm done from criminality. But they exclude a whole bunch of things from that. You know, that's primarily the drug economy. And they exclude bribery. You know, they exclude uh, econo uh, wildlife crime. You know, a whole bunch of things that are corruption, you know, they're excluding a whole bunch of things from that measure. So, uh, you know, other academics who tend to be a bit more dispassionate will say that it's up around three times that. So, you know, it's, it's, if you want to take a safe figure in the middle, it might be $60 billion a year of criminal funds. Now that bearing in mind sits within that two to 5% uh, area pretty neatly. And also, you know, that money is reinvested. So that's the important thing to remember. It's, it's like the power of compound interest applies to <laughs> criminal money as well. Yeah. And as it's reinvested and then put into income and, you know, wealth generating assets like property, then it grows and grows and grows. And you get to the point where it becomes such a large part of the economy that these big, you know, inequities are embedded in your economy at that point. And I think that's where Australia is finding itself now, where particularly when it comes to money laundering through property, we've been so negligent for a decade and a half. We've seen in the past 20 years, our property market has quadrupled, which is extraordinary. 
And we're at a point now where the average home in Sydney, bearing in mind this is Sydney, right down in the Southern Hemisphere, you know, it's 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 not Switzerland, you know, <laughs> it's 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 Australia in a very big country with a lot of space down at the bottom end of the world. You know, one point six million dollars for the median house in Sydney. Who is paying that? Who can afford that? You know, yeah. what what young person graduating from uni can ever believe that? they're going to have a home in their own country. Completely if, fucked. There's no way they can live in Sydney. There's no way. There's no way. They're, they're going to be tenants in their own country if they choose to live in Sydney or Melbourne, or, you know, they've kind of got to be a bit more creative. They've got to maybe, you know, you can see this tiny home movement is really gathering steam, or <laughs> you might just want to be an international footloose, you know, perpetual traveller and not really, uh, you know, not really tie yourself to anywhere, not really have an allegiance to any city. This is massively, massively uh, important to Australia because remember, we are the country of the fair go. We are the country that has forever prided itself on the fact that, you know, we say to the world, we're embracing you with open arms, come to Australia, you know, it's it's the Australian dream, you can have a home and a backyard mm -hmm. and raise your family, it's all gonna be good. Well. We don't offer that anymore. You know, mm. we've replaced that Australian dream with a new Australian dream, which is a negatively geared property portfolio with <laughs> massive tax advantages. And now we run policy not to give young families a roof over their head, but rather to give people the opportunity to be ambitious and, and build property assets. You know, it's absurd. It's yeah. absurd that we're, we're subsidizing our tax system subsidizes wealthy people with multiple properties at the expense of young people who don't get any of those perks or tax breaks when they're buying a principal residence so this is the new australia you know it's a much more brutal and cutthroat place it's it's quite hostile to young families to young people and they're popping out of uni with debt and they're popping out of uni in a gig economy and they don't have the same opportunities that their forebears had. And then on top of that, they're being told $1.6 million for a crummy house in Sydney. Uh, it's, it's, gonna, it's, it's, it's creating huge social tensions and I don't think we've really, as Australians, I don't think we've really um, properly conceived of what that's going to do to this country in 10, 20 years in terms of things like the birth rate, you know, and, and all the rest of it. And uh, the allegiance to the idea of a, a country, you know, which young people may not have because they feel like they've been betrayed by policymakers and politicians. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really it's a really interesting and challenging dynamic that we're seeing play out. And it's a different Australia to the one that uh, certainly the one that I grew up in and the opportunities I had that the world my children are growing up in is completely different or the country they are is very different. Yeah. So lots of stuff in there, Nathan. I want to return to the larger Australian property um, point. Uh, you said something very interesting that there'll be tenants in their own country. It's a very Australian-minded uh, comment to make because you could never imagine a Sweden saying, you're a tenant in Sweden, like you're in, you're in your own country because that notion of property ownership is so deeply rooted into what it is to be an Australian. You know, if you just have a fair go, then you'll have the the backyard and everything. But I, 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 don't, I didn't fully understand the figures you were saying before. So the global crime you say estimated worldwide was maybe 60 billion? Or was that just Australia? That's Australia, sorry. That, that's yeah, Australian okay, yeah. figures. So, so the international figure, um, conservatively, that's given is two trillion dollars. 
that's the global criminal economy that's you know two percent of global gdp um but uh down in australia you know we're looking about at about 60 billion know, about 60 billion which is the domestic criminal economy but of course if we are washing illicit money so that's the size of the domestic criminal economy if you think of that that's what's being ripped out of the australian economy in criminal and you know, going to line the pockets of scumbags and dirtbags and gangsters and crooks, right? But then in terms of what's coming in, well, the very fact that it's coming in and it's not being detected and it's not being seized means we didn't see it. So of the international criminal economy, how much is being washed in Australia? We just don't know. We don't know. No one knows. So that that would, given that we're, you know, a relatively small economy, uh, in global terms, that could be a staggering amount, a staggering amount of money relative to the Australian economy. Your um, hypothesis is that it would be significantly more than sixty billion. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and yeah, yeah, yeah. do you have any? And I know it's all estimates, and it's in it's under murky waters and just layers and layers of misdirection. But do you have any sense for the? amount of Chinese-specific capital flight that is being laundered through Australia? Um, look, I, I wouldn't want to throw uh, inflammatory figures out there, if you know what I mean. So I don't want to create a perception <laughs> because I don't want to create a perception that this is a Chinese problem. You know, this is an okay, Australian better, problem. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah. Uh, the, so, the, so, I'll just um, qualify. The only reason I'm saying yeah, is because yeah. it informs the larger mm-hmm. point of the um, Chinese bounty hunter and the, um, you yeah, know, yeah. Chinese uh, influence in the property price. That's why I'm saying it. Nothing uh, xenophobic. Yeah, yeah. And no, I, I get that. And, and you know, we just got to be careful with how we phrase it and frame it because, you know, um, as we said before, those those people who are earning money in China and then want to get it out of the country, that's a rational thing to do. I mean, you're living in a country that has limited respect for um, individual rights, you know. Um, and, and so we've seen that, you know, houses, land can just be acquired and repurposed, you know, and you've yeah. got no rights. So all of these things, property rights in China aren't what they are in the West. And so it's totally rational for people with wealth in China to want to diversify that. And maybe even to want to have a bolt hole, you know, as we've seen in Hong Kong, things can change really quickly. So, uh, you know, there's been this exodus from Hong Kong where people have wanted to to get out uh, before they, you know, because they're concerned about the the future and security of their asset base. So, uh, you know, in terms of the amount of money that's coming down, I mean, look, we know that China is by far our biggest trading partner, you know, in the in the legitimate economy. And, you know, a third of our trade is with China. So that's, that's enormous. And, uh, you know, on the, on the scale of the money coming down, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it is very hard to say. Uh, any, any figures are a guess. But I think what we can say is that it's certainly the biggest source of illicit money coming into Australia. Okay, uh, cool. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's where we're at. And, uh, you know, some of that, as we said, is going to be, perfectly legitimate money coming down through illegitimate channels and uh but you know then again we're also seeing huge amounts of synthetic drugs coming out of china out of laboratories and coming down to australia and that then is turning into another aspect of this problem Mm -hmm. 
I amazing. Just trying to lay the foundation for this money is coming into the country and then being laundered, which then is all of the downstream implications of that. So, um, as you mentioned before, uh, or actually, I'll take this um, this stat you mentioned in the interview you gave. Comparing the value of property to GDP, Australia four point seven times our uh, annual GDP is the value of our entire uh, property, which you know, is a statistic that means nothing without reference point. And in the US, it's 1.4 times, and this is per capita. So almost 4x are the biggest, most glorious economy in the world. So clearly it's like inflated, right? It, 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 there's, a, there's an imbalance there. And I think the hypothesis, not the hypothesis, the, the, the story of uh, the lucky laundry is that this is largely due to money laundering um, as Australia being this amazing destination for illicit funds to compound in value in property. So the, yeah, it's three times the relative to GDP, you know, three times the amount in Australia is invested in, in property. Now it's completely unproductive. You know, that's people's homes. It's not going, it's not being invested in businesses or shares or anything like that. Uh, whereas in the, in the U S you know, they, their wealth is much more tied up in equities than, than real estate. So there's something wrong in the economy in Australia. Now it's not to say that that's all criminal money. It's part of the, part of the picture. What it's saying is that we've now got an economic system that is completely dependent upon what I call the housing industrial complex. So we are all in this up to our eyeballs. The banks, the, the property market keeps underpins, it's the primary asset base of our banks. Most lending is being secured against housing uh, in Australia. So you've got this, this kind of economic monster that you could sort of say is a parasite in a sense because it's non-productive, uh, has, has kind of absorbed the economy, attached itself to it like a giant limpet that sits there and, and sort of sucks productivity and wealth out of the system and puts it into these non-exportable uh, asset classes called houses. And we then are losing money that could be going to feed entrepreneurship. So in the 70s, about two-thirds of Australian bank lending went to business and one-third went to housing. Now, fast forward, you know, 50 years and that has flipped. Two-thirds is going to housing, one-third is going to business. So you can see that house prices in Australia really are an expression of bank lending practices and tax incentives. Those two things together have conspired to blow the mother of all bubbles. You know, one of the biggest housing bubbles in the world, second only to Switzerland relative to GDP. I mean, it's extraordinary. How did, how did we get to this point when we had 2008 and the financial crisis as a clarion call to action to reform our economy and, and move away from this reliance on housing and housing inflation as the engine of the economy and economic growth. We didn't do it. We doubled down because it's until it implodes, it's easy money. It's, it's the easiest money, right? I mean, we call it house price growth, but if it was any other asset class, we'd call it skyrocketing inflation. You know, that in itself just shows how 
you know, how much this has absorbed the way that we think in Australia. We regard, we regard rising house prices as a really good thing, but we <laughs> regard rising food prices as a really bad thing, for instance, or energy prices. So you can see the way that it's just distorted the entire economic system and it's now at the point where we've kind of got a, uh, you know, a political system attached to a housing market rather than the other way around. And, you know, politicians have all got their investment portfolios as well. You can go and look at the register of interests and see how many investment properties and things like that our highly paid Canberra politicians have got. So, you know, the, the tax system and the negative gearing and things like that are a huge factor. Bank lending practices are a huge factor. The capital requirements that banks have, the Basel Accord, massively incentivizes real estate lending which creates these terrible bubbles as well. So it's a whole range of factors. And I think what's so horrifying about the notion of the lucky laundry is that, okay, money laundering is one of these factors. By far the biggest factor is going to be monetary policy and bank lending standards, right? But the most egregious, disgusting one is the fact that Australia will sit there and for fear of, of pricking the property bubble or scaring away property investors or whatever it is, Australia will allow criminals to come here and wash their money in Australia and turn a blind eye because, you know, we, we're too scared to, to deal with this hedra that's wrapped its limbs around the country. And I think that's just outrageous. I mean, the, the idea that you could be turning up at an auction and bidding against someone who is bidding with criminal money and the lawyer and that, that, is doing the conveyancing, the accountant that set up the company that they're buying it in, and the real estate agent who's getting them, you know, the the home of the century on Sydney Harbour, none of them are required to be remotely suspicious mm. and they're not allowed to report anything bad that they see to authorities in the form of Austrac. So I think that that is a – it's just a really profound porthole into – Gee whiz, has Australia really got to the point where we're so lacking in uh, moral conviction that will allow this to happen for 15 years in defiance of our international obligations and to the point where now we're languishing at the bottom of an international league table along with Haiti and Madagascar as the most recalcitrant country in the world on this issue. Good company. Good company, right? Those two financial powerhouses of Haiti and Madagascar. Uh, you know, I mean, the fact that we would allow that, I think it just is this really powerful insight into the extent to which this creature and its lobbying arms have just completely uh, captured our political system. There's a quote uh, from an interview you said that at the end of the day, if you want to fix these things, the place to start with is lobbying. Lobbying is the cancer of democracy. So I guess that is exactly the point you're making there. It's like the individual, us as Australians, my mates, my family who are living in Sydney. I mean, it's not like they can really do anything about this, right? It, it has to happen at the political level, but um, the, 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 the sense I get from you is that the politicians are totally captured by these lobbyists and the lobbyists have way too much power. Um, but also just to tie on to the point you said earlier as well, you know, our Labour Prime Minister, a man of the people, Anthony Albanese, has four properties, I believe. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. But 
the point of the lobbying? Well, well, he he has an extraordinary hunger for property because, as he told us many times in the last election, he grew up in state housing, so you can understand why he needs <laughs> yeah. four houses, right? Yeah. <laughs> that ain't going to happen to his kids. Um, no, yeah, look, and the look, state you know, housing's yeah, not yeah. going to be in a nice camper down area. No, if it exists at all, you know, um, totally. I mean, that's the other side. Is once housing gets to this extraordinary level of cost providing state housing becomes impossible you know it's it's ludicrously expensive like economically impossible yeah yeah, right yeah yeah i mean if if the average home was was you know um one times gdp or something like that you know um it would be it would be manageable but when you're getting up to 4.7 times gdp uh, you know as as the the mass of the Australian housing market, the $10.2 trillion of money that's tied up in housing. Uh, you know, I mean, the cost of providing a single, you know, low-cost house for state housing or, or social housing is prohibitive. Um, you know, it, just to put it in crude terms, you know, you can buy five times less the number of houses with the same money if you if you had a housing market that was one times GDP or... <laughs> you know, $2 trillion of Australian money. So, you, you know, I mean, that it's, it's, it's all related to this issue of inequity. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we've become so hypnotised in a way by the, the dream of housing, the idea that you buy a house and it you know, doubles every seven years or, or even faster, uh, becomes, faster, becomes yeah. this, yeah, you yeah, know, it's, the, it's the, the proverbial Kool-Aid bowl. Uh, and regulators and governments are being told by voters, don't take away our punch bowl, you know. Um, but the the thing that is concerning is that we've seen where this all leads. We've seen how it ends. We're sort of living in a state of denial because we've had, you know, we've had the most extraordinary economic miracle in Australia. You know, I, we've gone the longest in the world without a recession. I think it was like 27 years or something like that overtaking even the Netherlands. Uh, so, you know, the combination of the resources boom, the the growth of China, the, the latching our economy to the Chinese economy, once in a lifetime boom happening there, and then ratcheting that wealth up with a credit bubble. Uh, you know, that's the key thing. We took that wealth and then we multiplied it by credit. So it was a resources boom, um, you know, that, that's what we all told ourselves. But in reality, it was a credit boom masquerading as a resources boom. <laughs> and so that's the thing that's going to become very hard to unwind. And, I mean, it's amazing that we saw all of these mature, sophisticated economic e- economies like, you know, the UK, Ireland, Europe, the US, they all got smashed in the financial crisis in 2008. You know, Ireland's housing market more than halved. Uh, and it was a catastrophe. I mean, there were people coming down and working in Australia from Ireland who were sitting on 50% negative equity uh, because they'd bought homes at the peak and then they'd halved in value and they were stuck servicing the debt. Mm. So they were coming down and working, uh, you know, highly paid jobs in Australian resources. So this is the kind of future that we can look forward to if we don't get a handle on this thing. To be honest, I think it's now too late. Right. So I think we, you know, um, I mean, I've been banging this drum 
you know, voice in the wilderness for, for, <laughs> for many years, uh, having, having covered, you know, as a journal and a writer, having covered the financial crisis and then watching with horror as we, rather than reformed, we doubled down and, and, you know, since 2008, our housing market has doubled or tripled again. So I, I think, I don't think there's really a way out of it anymore. I don't want to be too negative, but I think we just, just have to horrific correction basically. Yeah, I mean, look, it could be the mother of all corrections or more than likely, you know, it could be that the uh, the dollar takes the hit. So, you know, the RBA does have that option to sort of inflate their way out of the mess, um, which, which disguises it and it prevents it from triggering a banking collapse. But as an import economy where we import most of our, our um, high-value goods, it's going to be brutal if Australia had a, you know, a dollar trading at 35 cents or something like that because the um the rba had to monetize its way out of this mess the let's uh let's do a little bit of doom porn um so you sort of uh, teed it up uh, a bit earlier suggesting that 10 to 20 years uh in the future all these compounding implications um people coming out of university with debt uh, not being able to afford to get a house, um, competing in a gig economy, you know, where I can compete with somebody on the other side of the world for the exact same job. Um, so your the specialization of labor is such that you have significantly higher competition to get the same job that only a few years ago, or especially in my parents' generation, uh, they would have been guaranteed. And X, Y, and Z, all these compounding implications, how do you see, what are the implications for the future uh, that you were sort of uh, leaning into a little bit earlier? Okay, so <laughs> so where do we, where do we go from here? Um, I guess the first, the first battle is convincing people that we have a problem. Um, and I hope my book has, has managed to do that. I hope if someone reads my book, they go, wow, you know, have we really let ourselves do this? Um, it sounds like I've convinced you. So therefore, the, the next part of that discussion is where to from here? Well, you know, these are, these are global issues that are playing out and we're living through the most extraordinary of times. And we are now seeing things like, uh, you know, if you think about it, you know, the... The Western economic model has always been based on really good governance and really good management and good fiscal policy and all the rest of it. And that leads to stability, you know, price stability, inflation control, all these things that make it really desirable to run a business in the West uh, or invest in the West. And so that's kind of how... how the West has attracted so much capital. It's also, you know, got really strong rule of law for asset protection. But if you look at what's been happening in the last few years, you know, we've had like, since 2008, we've had a problem with, um, you know, th there's been a deflationary environment and interest rates sitting at zero have hit what central banks call the zero lower bound, where if they go into negative territory, like they've done in, in parts of Scandinavia, you go negative 10 basis points or something like that and then people start taking their money out of the bank because they're paying to have their money protected within a bank and therefore if you go too low you're going to trigger a banking run so that's the zero lower bound and central banks have been you know absolutely backed into a corner where as a result of all of this massive creation of liquidity and money printing you then get a situation where the economy can't handle interest rate rises 
and interest rates were bumping along zero and there was QE and all the rest of it to try to um, trigger some inflation effectively and none of it worked. So one of the things that two years of lockdowns uh, as a result of COVID have done is if you think about it, people have been forced to stay home. They haven't been able to work. They haven't been able to be productive. They All of these things have happened. And then how have they survived? Well, governments have run historic stimulus packages. So, you know, coincidentally, we've just had two years that have been, you know, two years of the most extraordinary inflationary policies, you know, like third world level where you're telling people they can't leave the home, they can't go and work, they've got to, you know, they've got to do it for the, do it for, do it for the country. <laughs> Instead of go and work and be productive for the country, it's be unproductive for the sake of the country. Now, that was obviously driven by health policy, but it's had massive economic consequences. Those stimulus packages, you know, those of us in the um, AML anti-money laundering community were screaming in the wilderness about these stimulus packages, just saying there is no fraud controls. This is going to be the most historic fraud against taxpayers in human history. And now it's becoming apparent that that's exactly what has happened. If you look at how the, the COVID loans were stolen by organised crime in the UK, it's horrifying. If you look at the $19 billion in Australia that was paid to companies that were doing really well in the pandemic and yet got JobKeeper, you know, mm. these types of policy disasters that just threw money everywhere, uh, prevented productivity, supply chains broke down, and you just had basically the classic inflationary environment. You had lots of dollars chasing an undersupply of goods. So now, you know, we're seeing numbers coming now out of the UK where it's like they're predicting 18% inflation in the UK this year. That's third world stuff. To go from a couple of years ago, you know, at, at inflation barely registering to 18%, it's extraordinary. So you can see that we're now, we've now entered a period of time where the stability and reliability and all those things that Western markets used to offer has been torn up and thrown out the window. And now we're running Western economies like a banana republic. That's the truth of it. You know, uh, and and so this is this is just such a fascinating environment. So all the, you know, I mean, I mean, a good economy and a fair economy underpins an orderly society. You know, you've got to have a fair system of money because that's why people get out of bed and go to work and be productive because the system's fair. Countries where there's low corruption, people are more motivated because they believe that their work has value. And, and the pay packet that they take home is is reasonable and fair and it's worth worth going out there and contributing for. And uh, everyone else is doing breaks, the same. Yeah, absolutely. You can't have a class of people mm. that, that aren't bound by that. And if you look at the countries where the kleptocracy has just taken hold, you know, we can use Russia as an example. Uh, we could use Venezuela as an example. You know, there's a whole... <laughs> we, we're, we're, we're spoilt, for example, sadly enough. <laughs> if, you, if you look at those countries, there's, there's not only an enrichment of a class of people that don't deserve wealth, you know, which is highly destabilising, but you see a wide anting of the middle class as it becomes a case of, well, you're either in the, 
in the mafia or you're down the bottom being oppressed. And so you get this breakdown of trust across society, a breakdown of faith in the economy. And then, you know, there's many countries where you can see that it then just becomes dog eat dog. And, you know, that's just something that we can't allow to happen. You know, in my book, The Lucky Laundry, I'm kind of saying this is, there's a lot more at stake than money here. Money's just, forget money. It's just a ledger. It's just an accounting system. You know, I write about the polymer banknotes um, mm. because it's a way of kind of saying to people, don't forget, it's just plastic. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, don't, don't let money rule your life um, and, and make your life choices because you've got this amazing opportunity to live a life here. Don't, don't spend and waste your opportunity on this planet chasing bits of plastic, you know, like a bowerbird would do. Um, you know, do, do, do something meaningful that you believe in uh, and, and let, if you do that, just let, let um, look, put it this way. If you live in a fair and just society, and you go out there and do what you love and do something that really contributes, that's valuable, provides value to someone, then in a fair system, money will take care of itself. But when you flip over into a kleptocracy, so if we use Russia as an example, where uh, Bill Browder says that Putin's the wealthiest man in the world and his wealth is up around $200 billion, so Browder says, uh, you know, you look at that and you go, well, there's no fairness left in that economy. The average person can't live a good life. The, the average person can't do a fair job and an honest uh, d day's work and live a good life and a decent life. Uh, and that's, that's a tragedy. So in the West, I think we believe that it's not possible that faith in our system could break down to the extent that we've seen in other parts of the world. But I'll tell you what, I went up to Singapore and met with some dissidents in Singapore that were using financial intelligence and graph analytics and really cool stuff to try and find the money that had been stolen from Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And what they said to me just like shook me to the bone. They said, so these were, these were masters and PhD students in economics and, and political science. And they were um, looking at how a trillion dollars of Venezuelan wealth got stolen by the ruling elite. And basically, you know, they were using this system. It was an exchange window that they used to just rip off the entire country. But what they basically said was, you know, we, we have, they said to me, we've felt the sting of tear gas. We've felt battens railing down on our back because we were protesting against this larceny that had happened. And they said, what you guys in the West need to understand is it only takes 20 years to destroy a democracy. I was like, pardon? And they said, well, what you need to understand is in the 1950s, Venezuela was the fourth wealthiest country on earth. Fourth wealthiest, 1950s. You know, it was a dream country. And then they got bad government and then trust in the system broke down and they said it takes two decades to destroy a democracy. That's all. And it was an absolute warning to those of us in the West that, we have to fight for our system. We have to defend it. We have to educate ourselves about it. You know, we have to stand up against this corruption that we're starting to see just seeping into the political system and it's being accepted. No, it shouldn't be accepted. And if, if you know, the old saying, the price of democracy is eternal vigilance could never be more true. You know, in the West, we were born into a good system. 
we were like that third generation of children in a wealthy family. You know, the first makes the money, the second builds on it, and the third squanders it. We, it. Are, <laughs> we are the third generation after the wars that were fought to build liberal democracy and save liberal democracy. And we've peed it up against the wall in a way, you know, and we're seeing it decline on our watch. And that's what, that's what you know, I'm really inspired by the young generation coming through because they're so savvy and they know this stuff and they know that they're getting a raw deal and they can see that the um, beautiful, stable society and democracy that their parents had is kind of uh, breaking down a bit and they don't want their countries to turn into Venezuela. So I have a lot of hope, you know, in, in the next generation. And I think it's incumbent upon us who are that little bit older and maybe more experienced and God forbid, hopefully a little wiser than we were in our twenties to kind of, um, you know, send the message out there to, to everyone that we, we, we are in a, we're in a crisis in democracy at the moment and we've got to do something about it. You know, we can't give up on it. So that was a, a fascinating snapshot of your worldview for like the global financial, not system, but state of affairs, I guess. What about specifically with Australia? Implications 10, 20 years. Um, do you also, do you think Australia's democracy is being destroyed? I, I get the sense you're sort of foreshadowing this like uh, looming like urgency for Australia because wake up, this is actually happening to you now. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and look, I think if you if you believe what the Venezuelan dissidents said, and I believe them because they've lived through it, that it takes twenty years for a democracy to descend into a form of dysfunctional kleptocracy and tyranny, then I dare say I think we're about halfway there. I think we're about ten years into this process of decline. And the reason I say that is because you can see now the level of corruption that is happening, you know? Um, I mean, my book goes into 15 years of law reform that was just pushed aside, pushed aside, pushed aside. <laughs> Even as we were promising the rest of the world that we we're going to do something, every political leader went, nah, too hard. And then we've seen, you know, at the federal level, there is no ICAC. You know, at the state level, we have corruption bodies and they're finding all sorts of stuff. Look at look at the ICAC in New South Wales, you know. It's it's extraordinary what it's found. Without ICAC, Eddie O'Bead would never have been caught out, you know. That's that's one example. So, uh, you know, their their ICAC is incredibly powerful and yet look at the amount of money at the federal level, you know. Are we really to believe that there's no corruption at the federal level because none of it's getting uncovered and we're not hearing about any of it? No, no, corruption goes where the money is. And so those big federal contracts we've seen, uh, you know, airports, water rights, car parks, it's just one thing after another where the public purse is getting ripped off and people feel powerless. You know, people feel like they can't do anything about it and we just have to accept it. No, we don't have to accept it. We can't accept it, you know. We, we can't let our system deteriorate. And, you know, that's, that's the issue that I, look, I think it's the biggest political issue we face is how do we get this, you know, this rot of corruption that will, you know, I mean, look, it, it's like wood rot. It's the natural state of things is kind of oligarchy and kleptocracy unless you have a really vigilant populace and a really good system of governance and control bodies and, uh, you know, agencies like 
the the ICAC to come in and keep an eye on things. If you don't have that stuff, you will descend into a system of dysfunction. And I think the British system has been amazing for that because they built these checks and balances. They always had a really robust free media that would pick stuff up and then the media would pick stuff up and then the corruption bodies would be forced into action. You know, that system has served us really well. Uh, but I think, I don't know what your listeners think, but I feel like maybe our commercial media isn't serving us as well as it used to perhaps when it comes mm. to highlighting some of this stuff. And even if it does at the federal level, what's being done about it when you don't have a body to to go and look into this. So, yeah, this is this is a... It's a crisis of Australian democracy. It's, it's, I'm not beating that up. It really mm-hmm. is the most important issue we face is, is getting this ICAC in place that's been kicked off and pushed back, getting it in place and making sure that it's got massive powers. And most importantly, it has to be retrospective because what has been done and these schemes that have been done to steal from the public purse, there has to be accountability for that. So the Morrison government's ICAC was going to be purely forward-looking. Well, no, that's a free pass to anyone who had their snout in the trough. No way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, could you quickly just say what is the ICAC? Yeah, yeah, the Independent Commission Against Corruption. So that is a body, that's what it's called in New South Wales at least. Most states have a form of it and they've got pretty onerous powers to collect evidence, to compel witnesses to put them on the stand and force them, um, you know, to, to give evidence. And, you know, they've they've brought down many a politician in New South Wales, <laughs> rightly or wrongly. I mean, Barry O'Farrell got brought down over a single bottle of Grange, which you might say was a little excessive perhaps. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, it's a better scenario than what we have at the federal level, which is right. So. Let's return to the question of uh, lobbyism because um, mm. I think it got skipped over earlier when uh, we spoke about it. But we're speaking of Australian corruption. You have a massive bone to pick with the lobbyists. Um, mm. I'd love to get a sense for uh, how, how you think about it. Well, I'll give you an example. I went to a event. Um, it was the Banking and Finance Oath Conference in Sydney. And it was a day event that they run every year. And it's all about, you know, it's a really positive thing. It's about uh, encouraging people that work in the financial services sector to kind of aspire to a set of principles to operate by. And in the hope that if people are behaving well, you know, you're not then going to need heavy handed regulation to come in. So at the end of this day, an academic got up there and gave the closing presentation and basically said, forget everything else that you've heard today. If you can only focus on one thing, focus on lobbying. And we'd talked about the Financial Services Royal Commission and fees for dead people and money laundering, at the major Australian iconic banks and all the rest of it. And, you know, her point was, it all comes back to lobbying. It's the power of the lobbyists that hobbles the regulators and, and ensures that you know, uh, powerful financial interests or corporate interests get a free pass. So the the lobbying is just a cancer on democracy. People say, oh, you know, why do politicians never keep their promises? You know, it's ridiculous. No, no, they do. Their promises weren't to you. 
you know they they the real promises that they make are to their donors and to <laughs> the lobbyists and they're the promises they're keeping you know what they tell you a month before election every 3 or 4 years is just a, a charade votes yeah. yeah yeah no no they're very good at keeping promises they keep their promises to the to the donors let me assure you or they don't get money uh, next election so this is this is the issue this is uh i mean boy oh boy if you if you allow uh, former politicians to leave politics and then go and join a lobbying firm and give them unfettered access to Canberra or state politics where they can go and ply their trade and work their networks and do favours for, uh, you know, private interests against the interests of the nation as a whole, then something's really wrong. And, you know, when you look at the way that it works, I, you know, when I speak to people in developing countries, they laugh. Because they say, you know, they'll say, you know, you call, you call our country, you come up and lecture to us about, about corruption. Because maybe, you know, in a country, a developing country, the public service is really poorly paid. And so they charge, you know, a facilitation payment or a backhand <laughs> or a backsheesh, you know, to, to get A facilitation anything. payment. A facilitation payment, yeah. That's public relations 101, isn't it? <laughs> um, and, and so you've you've got, you know, they, they they say, but then look at what you do, you know. You allow lobbyists to come in and run riot. And the corruption in some of these developing countries is, okay, so it's everywhere. But the difference is they've got retail corruption, you know. They've got, they've got corruption at the front end at the low level. Whereas in the Western societies, unfortunately, what we're seeing now uh, happen is that you uh, you know you still you still have a, a visibly clean economy at the surface level in the front end. You're not going to get hit up for uh, fifty bucks to to get your passport stamped on the way into Australia, thankfully. Uh, but but then you have this radical level of of lobbying and influence peddling that ends up being the same thing, you know. But ex except exponentially larger in in scale. So, you know, that's, the, I mean, lobbying and corruption are, are so close, you know, it's, it's peddling of influence to get a private benefit. And um, the only difference is one of them's legal and one of them's illegal, in my view. You know, lobbying, when you have four lobbyists sitting in Canberra for every one politician and figures like that. Gee, is that um, really something? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's higher than that. Um, but certainly, certainly in the US, leading up to the financial crisis, that was the figure. So the financial sector in the US had four lobbyists for every one congressman. And lo and behold, they ended up with this catastrophic uh, financial crisis, partly as a consequence of that. So yeah, lobbying, lobbying is just, it, it's a disaster. I mean, uh, you know, we know that. But if we're going to deal with one thing, uh, you know, aside from a federal ICAC, it's got to be lobbying because lobbying is always at the heart of these really bad decisions that get made that aren't in the interest of the country as a whole. They're in the interest of some private interest group. That What, what can be done about that, though? Because if we take a caricature look at different countries you know people wouldn't say that the european union is very corrupt or australia is very corrupt but there's shitloads of lobbying in brussels and shitloads of lobbying in washington dc and obviously in canberra as well in australia like w what can be done about it is there also 
is it a is it a fair at all argument to make that it's kind of a part of a well-functioning country and maybe the lobbyists just take it too far but maybe lobbyists also serve a decent purpose um yeah well you know i mean there's absolutely a place for lobbying in the sense that uh i mean it's just a disgusting word but there's a place for uh you know dialogue or stakeholders to have a say in in the political process absolutely you know uh for instance, if you're passing a, a law that might affect the financial services sector, you would want the financial services sector to have a say in, in that process. Otherwise, you might get a really bad law, and that happens all the time. It's like a correcting so, mechanism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? There are mechanisms for that. So whenever legislation comes up, there's this transparent process where they throw it out to consultation and everyone gets to put their consultation paper in and, you know, unless they ask otherwise, they're made public and you can see what people are saying, you can read them. This system was set up because it works and it gives us the best outcome. So if you think about it, if there's a, if there's a consultation on a financial sector law reform, everyone gets to put their two bob in and then the senate or parliamentary committee that's running it looks at all of those and then in a very open forum runs runs some sessions and then pulls together a report with recommendations that go to the government to make law that's a massively convoluted process right it's expensive it's time consuming but it's good because it's transparent and you you get the best recommendations and then the parliament can act on that now, if you're going through that whole process and it's kind of a charade and then the, the recommendations and the report get put forward and then it gets into the parliament and then it's completely ignored because lobbyists have had the ear of the, the people inside the, the house and the final law that gets put forward or policy has nothing to do with, you know, it looks nothing like the public consultation. It looks a lot like something that a lobbyist has thrown on their desk. Then the entire system's a sham, you know. <laughs> you, might as well just, you might as well just move to a totalitarian system like China's because at least it's efficient. <laughs> so, yeah, we end up with the worst of all worlds. We get this incredibly inefficient system. And then at the end of the day, after all of that, uh, charade of democracy we then get a lobbyist coming through in secret having meetings in secret in a in a you know western country that we're not allowed to see and hear about um, and then who knows what they're what they're offering what they're promising you know what about yeah. jobs after after canberra you know we see it all the time right. <laughs> uh, where people leave and then I mean, that's so to, scummy yeah it's so obvious isn't it it's mm. so obvious it's so appalling um, i think people know you know, they're, they're fed up with it. They know what's going on. They care. I really think people care in Australia. But I think there's this thing where the, um, you know, I, I guess people just don't know really what to do about it and they don't understand the power of people coming together and demanding reform. But look at the, look at the recent election and, you know, if you, if you think about the, the teal groups that came in, you know, with a really a um three policy positions that they had in common and and one of them was the federal icac and transparency so that tells you that the public do care and they want this and they believe in australia and they believe in our system and they're willing to vote for it so you know i 
there's there's massive amounts of hope, but um, I think people really need to be annoyed and angry and and demanding change and 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 putting an end to this nonsense. Mm. Does that do just but you know outside of just off the record? Does that resonate with what you're kind of seeing and feeling? Um, Which part? Oh, just the the general worldview. Um, well, that I'm expressing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm far less sophisticated in my understanding of it, you know, to 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 yeah, to do yeah. to necessarily disagree. But I mean, um, the cost of inflation, I definitely feel. Um, mm. but I've lived outside of Australia for so long. I had a really interesting experience when I, I came back just for a wedding recently. And that's when I, I saw your book in the bookshelves and I was like, Oh, interesting. This will be a good podcast guest. And I listened to it on the plane back. Um, and I got this sense that people were much more sort of jaded about Australian culture, um, that, or just about Australia more generally than there had been when I'd left about four or five years earlier. And so that was quite interesting. And then I did an interview with Paul Cleary, who's a journalist you might know, um, and then as well, Dick Smith. And they were both giving this same sentiment, like Australia isn't what it used to be. People are way more individualistic now. Um, X, Y, and Z. And all those, you know, sort of little factors sort of form a worldview, which again, you're sort of reinforcing again here. But I do feel like it's, I'm not feeling it here in Sweden. Um, but as you know, you know, the European continent is many, many different cultures. And so you don't necessarily get a consensus European view on something. Um, hmm. yeah. That makes isn't, sense? That, isn't that fascinating? I mean, sometimes you can only see it when you're an outsider. It's the boiling frog scenario yes, you know, where the decline is true. so incremental, but when you've lived overseas and you come back so often hmm. or spent extended times, you know, even a long multi-month trip you can come back and go whoa you know mm. wow uh really really seeing your home country in a new light um so it's interesting that you say that when you come back you're sensing this thing of being jaded uh you know definitely that, that's, yeah that's, jaded. jaded work opportunities yep. aren't that good um something as well that was huge which is a compounding factor on that as well and i think maybe we can even leave this in this isn't that bad um is cocaine the influence of cocaine so um, I don't think it's just a reflection of who my friends are and who they're hanging out with. I do think it is a broader um, problem where way more people doing uh, recreationally doing cocaine, more often sports betting, way more often pokies, way more often from what I remember. And I don't know how much of that is just, I've come back, my mates are older, you know, maybe they've got a job, so they've got a little bit more disposable income to spend on these things, or if it is a broader cultural issue in Australia, but fascinating. I have a quote from chapter 30 where you, um, the, you track these container ships that come from Mexico to Melbourne and it's a ton of meth that you bring off the, so that's something, I don't know if you have uh, much insight into as well. I'd love to know more about the problem of cocaine in Australia, how it affects the culture, but also how it just reinforces all of this illicit cash running through the society, which then just goes and gets pumped into a pokey, which is on all the sports um, uh, betting platforms, online gambling. Shit, that's a whole nother side to the book. And that's actually a great thing about the book too. It is 
broad it encompasses so much um which is kind of a sense that i just had while you were speaking like i've got all these questions and i don't know how to really fit them in without just making it really awkward transitions all the time yeah no i mean it's there's a lot of aspects to it isn't there and as you start to see as you start to see a decline in integrity it it's like the the ripples in the pond you know the butterfly effect so you've raised a really good point there around cocaine so uh you know I mean, it's it's a it's Australia's second favourite drug. You know, the favourite being meth, which is way worse. Okay, so in Sydney you're going to see cocaine. In places like Western Australia and rural areas, you're going to see meth. If people were going to take, um, you know, if you had a choice, you'd want them on cocaine, right? I mean, meth's just a disaster, a mm. human disaster at every level. So, you know, but but let's let's look at uh, so so you know of an 11 billion dollar drug market you know and and say 5 billion is is in cocaine each year uh you look at that and you think whoa that's a lot of money right there's a lot of money flowing around there there's a lot of people having a little side hustle where mm-hmm. they sell coke you know to friends and family and a little network we're seeing mm-hmm. cases all the time where high profile figures and instagrammers and people that don't seem to work much but always have loads of money um <laughs> are busted and they've been running a little drug delivery service around the eastern suburbs of sydney you know it's it happens all the time so this is part of the issue so as you get a society that starts losing integrity and this, uh, you know, if you think about it, if you're if you're popping out from uni with all of those things we talked about, conspiring against you, um, are you more inclined to go? Well, everyone else is selling a bit of coke. Why don't I to make ends meet? Uh, yes, you would. Right, it was this way is, more culturally is, acceptable. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a fast paced kind of society. Everyone's on the hustle, on the make, trying to make ends meet, servicing massive mortgages, or wanting to get a house and get their foot on the ladder. And so this is a reflection of of that issue for sure. And so it's not just the the drug of choice for people that are kind of you know working, working at a bank. really high level. Yeah. You know, just just nonstop. You know, no, it's like um, trades. It's tradies, you know, and it's also a little bit of a side income, a side hustle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it starts to infect things in a really big way. And then you talk about sports betting and pokies. Well, if you're clearing cash on a side business, clearing coke around the uh, suburbs of Sydney, what are you going to do? If you want to put that money into a home or a mortgage or invest it or whatever, you've got to legitimize it bang you're suddenly in the world of money laundering (laughs) so at that point you've got to get that money in the system now sports betting gambling and pokey machines are really simple ways to launder low level amounts of money so at the high end uh you know they're they're not so great you've got to be a high roller or use trade finance or a bunch of other techniques i go into in the book but at the low end absolutely Mm. you know that's that's a very easy way to launder cash through those things. So, you know, is there a link there? It, it's I think it's all linked. I think it's all all linked to a society that's spinning at such a fast pace and is losing that sense of equity uh, and and 
and everyone's kind of, uh, you know, left in a situation where they sort of have to be part of it. And, you know, getting back to Venezuela or Mexico or some of these other places where a economic dysfunction occurs to such a scale that pretty much everyone's running a hustle. Now, it's not just, I'll tell you a story uh, about someone that I interviewed from Italy who had basically left Italy because this person was a surgeon and living in Italy, it got to the point where it was so bad because the tax base has been so heavily eroded, right? Because everyone's just, you know, <laughs> not paying their taxes and um, all the rest Classic. of it. Classic. It's what it is Running criminal Italian. scams, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> but, but the problem then is that the government turns around and goes, okay, so the honest people that are captive and declaring their income, we've got to hammer them, you know, 60% tax rate or whatever, because, uh, you know, they're, they're the captive tax base. So this, this individual was a surgeon and was, you know, lecturing in the university and all the rest of it, um, a pillar of society. And he could not run his book, his business without running two sets of books. That's how bad it's got in Italy. So wow. you, you literally have a situation where if you want to run a business, you've got to be running two sets of books. You bang, you know, it's like we said about the Chinese people that want to move money. You're sucked into the underworld economy just to survive. So, uh, you know, this person had left Italy and come to Australia and they used to run pensionis and believe it or not, they could come into Australia as, as immigrants because with a um, skilled visa, hospitality was an in-demand skill and so he was working in a hospitality business in Australia rather than being a surgeon in Italy because he wanted his son to grow up in a country where he wasn't mm. forced to basically be a shyster just to make ends meet and he's telling me this story and it's like it's another one of those ones where you know when you travel the world doing this sort of work and you meet these extraordinary people and they tell you these stories it really hits you in the stomach and you think, wow, you know, we, we've got so much to protect. But you can only protect it if, you, if you're aware of what you have. I think something um, as well, and I don't know how much of this is sort of the, the, the judgments that one makes when they're on the outside, like I am on the outside of Australia, but the commentary you make uh, from the famous Donald Horn quote early in the book how Australia is, yes, the lucky country, but it's run by a bunch of second-rate people. Um, and then as well, you go on to criticize Australia's lack of curiosity. Um, you know, these can feel like just sort of, uh, sort of cynical judgments, I think, from afar, because everyone has their own difficulties in their life. It's equally hard for everyone to get things going, but so forth. But I really came back and I just had this feeling so profoundly thrust onto me that what the fuck is happening here guys it's like no one gives a shit about anything you're doing loads of drugs there's no ambition and i and how much of this is me just projecting my own feeling of life onto them and so forth but it's not just my mates as well even, i could even see it in my in my parents a bit this is like less interested in life and now I don't know where that takes me, that feeling takes me, but it is worth saying in the context of, you know, Australia largely becoming a little bit more jaded. Um, and also just to double down on this example of the Eastern European guys running drugs as a side hustle, I'll keep it vague, but my mate's brother is a plumber. He just bought a really nice apartment in Little Bay, which is 
write down, you know, where I'm from Malabar or my friends are in Malabar. Um, you know, great place full of housing commission when we bought it back in 2000. Now a, a, a house across the road is being bought at 500,000 above the market rate. And no one even knows who lives there. It's like, Oh, that sounds pretty fishy to me. Um, but this guy sells cocaine and has now just bought, he paid cash his down deposit for a beautiful apartment, little Bay. Um, I don't know. It feels like the, it, it just felt so weird to me. It didn't feel like this Australia that I grew up in. For example, no one gave a shit that the cricket was on. Now it's such a weird thing for, to judge, but is that a signal of a declining culture in Australia? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but that's a little bit of, I guess the just commentary on, on the broader point there. It's a, it's a profound observation. And, you know, I mean, what does that what does that tell people when they hear that this guy that they know is a coke dealer is off buying a massively expensive house and they can't afford to get a loan and they're working as a nurse yes. or a fiery or just a, a, you know anything productive a tradie whatever it is mm-hmm. um, you know that's a society sending a profoundly toxic message and people are going to pick up on that and play by the rules of the society they're in. So it's pretty fascinating that you're up there in Scandinavia, which is sitting way, way high up the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index, Mm -hmm. high being a good thing, right? Low being bad. So you've got the Scandinavian countries right up there. You've got Australia just declining down that every single year. You know, one of a country that used to be at seven or eight, you know, and it's plummeting down that list. And it's a it's a national tragedy. It's a national disgrace. And this is perceptions. This is this. It's perceptions index. Right. So it's the barometer of uh, what how other people see us. So the rest of the world believes Australia is becoming more and more corrupt or less and less has less and less integrity. So it's it's not just you, you know. It's probably profound for you to come from a country that still aspires to that, and then come mm. back and see the shift in Australia as it plummets down that index. And it's like, you know, that's a clarion call for all of us to to sit there and go, yes, this is happening. This is real. Uh, you know, we've got to we've got to we've we've got to arrest the the decline uh, in relation to no one being interested in the cricket. Well, maybe that's because they're all on coke. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a slow game, man. It's a slow game. And, you know, the idea that, um, you know, we all have the nostalgia of summer, you know, Uh, and I know crew that still have the routine of, you know, the Boxing Day test. They turn on the wireless and sit in the backyard with a shandy Mm. and listen to the cricket because it's just (laughs) this way of uh, saying, yep, you know, we're on holidays now, yeah, slowing yeah. <laughs> down. Um, so it is It is fascinating, isn't it? I, I think the sports that we love are symbolic and meaningful. And the fact that cricket went from the test to the one day and then the 2020, and now it's mm-hmm. like, well, I don't watch the game. I just bet on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I just I just look at the odds, and that's my that's that's all I care about the cricket. I tell you what, a fascinating thing though. Uh, there is an ACIC, the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission uh, team now set up just to targeting corruption in sports and organised crime in sports, and they say their official figure is that twenty five percent of sport at all levels, you know, is linked to crime, linked to organised crime. So that's pretty fascinating isn't it that's just another indication of like oh my goodness is mm-hmm. there nothing is nothing sacred is nothing mm-hmm. sacrosanct that yeah 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 
you know, I mean, your, your children, when your children can can quote the odds on sports <laughs> because they're watching the footy and seeing yep. gambling ads, something's wrong. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you, you brought that up in your Michael West interview at the end, and I actually wanted to ask you specifically about money laundering through sports. So take rugby league, for example, minor, minor sport compared to the big European ones or American ones, right? But Nick Politis, famous wealthy business owner that owns the Sydney Roosters, famously might give uh, a cash in a paper bag to a player to incentivize him to come, maybe give him a bit of his property, slice it off for him. This is the examples of money laundering, or is it even more egregious than that? Oh, way more egregious. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's heavily tied to the gambling and betting. So that's a big part of it. Uh, so bearing in mind that uh, these these gambling markets, uh, you know, the, the people, the organized crime groups that infiltrate sport, they are so determined and they're so patient. So, you know, they will, they will get a a veteran of the game who was compromised early in this person's career, right? And they've been throwing matches or giving information or whatever it might be <laughs> to the um, the bookies, right? And and getting getting things in return. Now they they will use those people to groom up and comers. It's it's extraordinary. But you know they'll they'll meet them and mentor them and support them. And then oh you know we're all earning a bit of money on the side. You know we do mm. a bit of this and that. Oh mate, do you want to make a few bucks? I'll introduce you to my friend. It's really nefarious and sophisticated. And so young players coming through. Uh, you know, that's that's how they're being groomed into into that world of of corruption in sport. So that's a huge issue. But then of course the other thing you've got to ask yourself is look at look at uh you know, Premier League football, look at the fact that there's sanctions on Russia at the moment and all of a sudden all of these Russian oligarchs are desperately trying to get rid of uh football teams. You know, before they get sanctioned and frozen like like their boats, like Abramovich has just had to um, dump, his, you know, his interests. Well, boy oh boy, why were they there in the first place, right? Well, player transfers, you know, all of these things. If you've, in the same way that the art market is really good for money laundering because you can run an auction in full public view, and you've got a good like a painting that's impossible to value. It's a one-off unique item and its value is set by the market. So if I owe you $20 million for some criminal activity, then we can sit there and you can sell an artwork and I'll have two bidders and we'll bid $20 million above what it's worth. And it'll be written up in the papers as an incredible result for the art market and money washed in plain sight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cleared cleared by the House of Christie's or whatever it might be that has um has arranged the auction, you know, and, and given their stamp of approval. So it's the same with players, you know. So football teams can do player transfers at ridiculous numbers and values. And those those players are being just used as a chattel in effect to effect a a illicit money transfer to settle a debt in full public view. It's written up in the papers. Look how much yeah. we got for this player. Um, you know, Chelsea, blah, 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 paid this for this. And, uh, you know, that's that's one of the ways that you launder money through through sport teams. So it's it's it runs all the way through, you know what I mean, from, from tipping off bookies at the lower end to, um, you know, player transfers worth tens of millions of dollars. How funny is it the same uh, effects that might be inflating housing prices in australia could be consequence for inflating player prices in say the english premier league 
Totally. Same dynamic, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what you, what you, and, and why is it similar? It's similar in some ways because what you're talking about are highly illiquid markets. And so this is, this is the thing with property. Property uh, is like the ultimate illiquid stock. So only about 1% of the property market turns over every year, right? So what that means is that a small number of transactions can massively affect the benchmark. So when the house down the road sells for 200 grand above reserve, that becomes the new benchmark for the whole mm. suburb. And then that the next one sells for 200 and that's how you get these rapidly escalating incredible prices. But what it also means is that these tiny this tiny level of turnover re-rates the entire suburb mm-hmm. and that becomes the new valuation and everyone's in on it, right? So the banks when you think about it the banks have got mortgages over the underlying assets and they have to mark their book to market. And, and you know, under the bank capital rules, they've got to um, be able to establish that they are holding enough collateral behind these loans. Well, isn't it good for them if the property mm-hmm. market keeps going up? It's good for everyone. And you know what? If the property market keeps going up, even when people get into trouble, you don't hear about it because they sell at a profit. So if the banks have been giving out unsustainable credit or mortgage brokers have been fudging the paperwork and getting people in on finance they can't afford, but the market went up 20% last year, no one's complaining, right? Everyone gets away scot-free and the person that bought a house they couldn't afford goes, phew, that's the best mistake I ever made. I just got 400 grand tax-free, right? Because it's my principal residence. So you can see how the whole system gets kind of implicated in this phenomenon of continually rising house prices it runs across the whole system it's the banks have to have it the brokers want to have it the real estate agents want to have it the politicians want to have it you know the reserve bank wants to have it apra wants to have it so everyone is kind of complicit in this desire for the ever escalating magic pudding of house prices and that little bit of turnover just like a english premier league player transfer the little bit of turnover in an illiquid property market uh, can have an outsized impact. Is there any argument uh, for to be made that so be it, Australian prop- Sydney property um, just keeps rising and rising and rising and rising. Boo-hoo if you can't afford to buy into the property market. Um, congratulations if you already were in it. Go live elsewhere. Australia is a giant country and admittedly most of it's uninhabitable but that coastline there's room for other big population densities is there any argument to say that this is just the the mechanisms of capitalism within australia obviously it's artificially pumped with all of this illicit money but nonetheless this is this is how australia works deal with it move elsewhere yeah that's a good really good point because you hear that right um, your expectations are too high. I used to live in a one-bed fibro house when I was young and I never ate avocado. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you kids need to toughen up. That's that's the argument you hear. Well, come on, mate. You could buy that house on one income while your wife stayed home, you know, all, all these factors. But anyway, um, that aside, let's just look at it from a, a pragmatic perspective. We've got a system where... You know, we haven't even started on superannuation, but that's a quagmire in its own right. <laughs> but if you look at it, you know, the, the, the family home or the principal residence isn't included in the asset test for pensions. So what it's doing is it's, it's incentivizing 
retirees who do not have to work in high population centres, close to offices and all the rest of it, they're being incentivised by the tax system and the pension system and the entire financial system to stay in big, expensive, oversized homes that they maybe can't even maintain anymore uh, because if they downsize, they might lose their pension or they'll pay stamp duty or whatever have you. And so they're being incentivized to stay in these houses that are close to the jobs while young families are being forced out into the fringes into little apartments to raise kids in. Now, something is very wrong there. Like, just look at it at, at face value, and you have to say there's something perverse in the financial system when it's incentivizing that. When you've got lonely pensioners living, rattling around in mansions close to the jobs, and then mm. you've got parents spending, you know, some of them in Sydney are spending two hours a day commuting, and that's time that they should be at home with their kids. Yeah, no, so right. yeah, no, it's it's uh, look, uh, <laughs> that would be my answer to anyone that says, "Oh, move up the coast or go go where housing's cheaper." Yeah, that's a really nice thing to say when you're retired. But for young families, they should be able to live near the jobs. Um, and you know, we sh we want to have as a society, we really want to have young families having kids. We don't, you know, we've got a shrinking. Um, we've got a population that doesn't want to have kids anymore, you know, because they're going, well, I'll just get a cavoodle instead. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's just another ridiculous, ridiculous thing. And I think inertia plays a huge part, right? No one, no one politically or socially wants to tackle these tough issues because you're going to get some interest group offside, you know. And so we just end up in a, like in Singapore, this would just get solved. Um, it would just get done because they've got a, you know, um, a system that's slightly different, different to ours politically. So I'm not saying that's a better system, but I'm yeah. just suggesting but as well, that maybe... a much smaller population. Um, there's less complexity in, when the group size is small. Yeah, yeah. And I probably chose a bad example there because there's a massive housing crisis in Singapore as well. But <laughs> I guess <laughs> I, it's eaten the entire global economy, unfortunately. But wow. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it is that situation where we lack the political courage of a kind of a hawk or a, uh, you know, um, a Menzies or someone like that to come in and say, this is for the good of the country. We're going to push this through um, and, and make the reforms that, that fix these problems. Maybe it's a little bit different now with the rapid pivot to online. So that, that has really, really been a big factor. You can now have a good job and you can come in two days a week, maybe stay overnight in the city and crash at a mate's house or get a cheap hotel and then come back and do three days at home. Um, that solves a bunch of those issues. And that's great because it's going to spread the population out uh, totally. into yeah. the, uh, you know, away from these radically overpriced and increasingly yeah. unlivable capital cities. But at the same time, who who in Australia doesn't want to live near the ocean, right? And, and I'm not going to blame anyone for that. So, totally, so you've yeah. kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're gonna um, we're sort of getting that massive urban sprawl happening um, for this reason because people want to stay near the coast. Good on them, yeah. and uh, and therefore um, they're having to spread further and further. So I think I think Perth is now the most sprawly capital city on earth. It spans wow, really? so, it spans over something like 150 kilometres <laughs> nice. from Mandurah 
all the way through to sort of Joondal up and further in the north. So it's this huge urban sprawl. Mm. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, that, that can be good or bad, but you can just see the, the, the dynamic playing out, right? Mm-hmm. This is a very left field question, but you've brought up Australia's demographics a few times. I just wonder if you um, are familiar with Peter Zihan's work and sort of the end of globalization and whether that uh, fits into your worldview at all. I haven't had the pleasure. Okay, can you then don't can you give uh, me a No, I would do it a complete injustice. Um but he he's beating the demographic drum, I guess, louder than anyone else is. Um, you know, and he has extremely pessimistic views about um China and Europe, um, optimistic views about the United States and uh much of the developing world. Just from a demographic perspective and so forth. But I would do it an injustice bringing it up, so I will let you uh, address it in your own time. But it is fascinating. He's um, you know, just a very prominent geopolitical analyst um, being on the podcast circuit. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, demographics is huge, right? Uh, you know, and, and you're getting this shrinking population in, in the West. And for all the reasons that we've just discussed, that is just going to get more and more pronounced um mm-hmm. so we're gonna see you know look that that gets into a whole bunch of really complicated areas that we probably don't want to go yeah. today yeah no worries we'll, we'll, we'll stick to the lucky laundry and, and sort of like i alluded to earlier you know it is a very broad book and i think michael west was right he sort of sort of reads like a spy thriller uh there are so many fascinating characters that you get to um, sort of pick up with and follow for a little bit before it goes on to what the next implication is um, for all this money laundering and t- just takes you through the, the the whole process. So I wanted to ask you who your favorite character was. Um, I think you sort of said off air, it might've been this uh, Bill Mikefella. Um Could you just give us a sense for the type of characters that we learn about in the book? Yeah, absolutely. You've sort of, uh, you've thrown me in it there. It's like, um, being at a family lunch and saying, Hey, you said earlier that your second daughter is your favorite <laughs> child, you know, <laughs> um, but, uh, but Bill is certainly as a writer, Bill would have to be one of my favorite, uh, characters because his life is just unbelievable. You know, the things that he's done, his experiences, uh, when you, when you're writing these kind of books and you meet these phenomenal people that have done crazy undercover work and infiltrated drug cartels and um, set themselves up as, you know, like in in Bill's case, he was such a good undercover agent uh, that he was was with the mounted police in Canada and the FBI got him down to the States, to Miami, because they wanted to suss out how money laundering was happening in the, the, you know, the cocaine cowboy sort of era uh <laughs> and uh you know they, they were 30 years ahead of sydney right <laughs> and so um he went down and he he played a character uh in an undercover capacity of the money man for a colombian cartel and in america when they see something in a operation like a boat or a car or a rolex or a tailored suit or whatever it might be that's that asset is seized and while the uh, case is proceeding, they're allowed to use that, believe it or not, in other oh, jobs. Right. <laughs> so what they did here was they had a seized boat and they kitted it out with cameras and microphones. And Bill played a character called Bill McDonald, who was a money launderer, suave guy. And he invited 130 of Miami's finest you know, lawyers, 
accountants, uh, business people onto the boat, financiers onto the boat and got them on camera offering to launder money for his Latin American cartel. Incredible, 130 people, like it was a massive sting operation. And this guy's just so charismatic and so quick and, you know, can play these characters. And <laughs> for him, uh, you know, really his drug was information, you know, like he was dealing in the underworld of drugs, but uh, he, he, he was addicted himself really to to the hunt and to this this game of getting intel and feeding it back. And, you know, the, the guys that work in these undercover roles, they've got big egos. Uh, mm. Bill will will admit that. He, you know, he <laughs> understands that. You know, he's got a bit of an ego. Um, but he's, he's a, you know, that, that that's why he's so charismatic as well and why he's mm. so good at what he did. And, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were competitive. So they'd be working on undercover jobs, but, you know, there was a sort of competitiveness about who could who could get the biggest sting. And um, mm-hmm. there were some big ones. I mean, there's an amazing book called The Infiltrator about Bob Mazer, who is, he's not in my book because, uh, you know, he's, he's written his own stuff up and it's been made into movies. Yeah. Uh, so he can, he can write his story himself very capably, but I'd recommend anyone go and get, get hold of that or watch it. It's Brian Cranston playing this guy. And he's, he's another member of this anti-money laundering community that, that did the undercover work. So they're all wild characters, man. And, you know, they had contracts on their life and one slip up, one slip of the tongue, you know, one mistake, <laughs> they're dead. See you later. Yeah. Um, and as well, this is a bit of a dark turn, but in the book, you you learn about the criminal sources of some of this wealth. And as we've established, uh, some of the capital flight isn't necessarily criminal, but we also spoke about the drug influence. And then there's also these other criminal sources of wealth influences as well. You know, by not criminalizing all of this money laundering, you are allowing and then propagating these types of crimes. And so there's really sickening pay-per-view stuff. Don't really need to mention on the podcast, but just in the book, it highlights that, you know, you are inadvertently supporting just the worst of humanity. Oh man, it's, it's a Faustian pact. So if you're a bank and you turn around and go like Westpac did, you know, you turn around and go, well, Hey, we want to run, a international tax laundromat so that major multinationals can book Australian revenue in Singapore. Okay, so you make the call to do that as a business and you turn a blind eye and you facilitate that that um, multi-billion dollar tax fraud on Australia. Even though you're one of Australia's, even though you're Australia's oldest bank and one of Australia's, you know, biggest and most reputable brands that spends infinite amounts of money on brand building and advertising, you're going to go and do that. And it's a commercial decision. Well, the, the problem that they had was they believed internally that they'd never get pulled up. Like if it got found out, it was such a complex and arcane scheme that if they got busted running this, um, you know, international tax laundromat, no one would care enough to go after them. Well, what they didn't count on was when you turn a blind eye to dirty money in your organization and you let it in, it's a, it's a deal with the devil. And so what they found was when the authorities started looking at what was going on, they then discovered that the, the very characteristics that made them a great bank to use for tax evasion also made them a great bank to use in this child exploitation area. And so they were... Uh, 
you know, embroiled in that. And mm. uh, in in the end, something like 176 of their customers were were linked to that um, typology. Mm-hmm. Fit the fit the profile, right? So. Uh, what you then have is a nice symbol for what Australia has done as well because you can scale that up to the whole country and, and you would then say, well, if you sit there and you're happy to have, uh, you know, Chinese money flowing in or uh, the, the guys up in Papua New Guinea that fight corruption call us the Caymans of the South Pacific because corrupt Papua New Guineans will have property all over Queensland, you know, waterfront mm. property, property. And they feel that Australia doesn't do enough. So if we turn a blind eye to that and let that money come into the country, we're kind of, you know, we're a scaled up version of Westpac Bank at its <laughs> darkest days. It's not like that anymore. I should I should stress, but you know, during during those dark days, uh, you know, that's what that's what we're doing. And and there is frustration, palpable frustration from very senior people within these banks that got absolutely whacked who turn around and kind of say on the quiet, why are our politicians standing up in public and saying how terrible we've been? Can we judge them by the same standard? And I think that's totally valid. So if the government gets up there and says that this is the worst thing it's ever seen, which is what it did with Westpac, you've got to turn around and go, well, what did you do? Because remember, you had these laws to capture real estate agents, accountants, uh, high-value good dealers, uh, lawyers. You know, you had those laws sitting there on the bench, ready to go, you know, committed to for 16 years, and yet you didn't do anything about that. So it's a little bit rich to take the high moral ground against corporate leaders that do the same thing. So that's where that, that's where that uh, you know, it really comes back to culture within an organisation. What does the culture allow? You know, what do the leaders accept? What what message are they sending? People within the organisation will behave along the lines of that culture. It happens at a societal level through culture as well. You know, what do we tolerate as a society? Do we value integrity? Do we value do we value having a clean economy just because it's the right thing to do? And would we forego a little bit of wealth? Would we would we say no to that kleptocrat money that's being stolen out of countries that desperately need it for their own development? Um, that's it's the same dynamic. It's just a scaled up version. Yeah. Do, do you think that Australians would, um, if they didn't feel like they were powerless in the face of that? Because my sense is that it's it's simply like my my old man doesn't know the uh, the. You know, he hasn't read the lucky laundry, right? He doesn't have an interest in offshore finance and financial secrecy. He just saw the house across the street selling above market rate as a brilliant upside for him. Like, great. I wish a few more of them could come, you know? So, but if but if the, the case was presented to him that, hey, look, you know, the only reason that guy has that money is because he was doing this really bad stuff and um, it actually poisons Australia's democracy, uh, he'd be like, oh, okay, fine, maybe not. Um, so... Do you think Australians, if they were understood fully, would then be able to make that 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 trade off? Yeah, look, I th- I think Australians would and will and do, but it's it's kind of being concealed from them. The reality of of the the choice that they're making is sort of it's it's not put out there, right? And so uh, if you think about it, have a have a look at what's the powerhouse of advertising in the media 
you know, apart from public health and the coronavirus, which has been the biggest advertiser for two years, the biggest drugs advertiser, and <laughs> drugs and alcohol and gambling are pretty big, but bigger than all of that is housing and real estate, right? You know, like the ads for the ads for housing, the, you know, the, the, they used to call it the rivers of gold in newspapers was the classifieds <laughs> and the biggest yeah. of that was housing. And then that, that all got torn up and taken away. But as you saw the, the big media houses went, right, we've got to get domain and we've got to get realestate.com.au because we have to own the platforms where this advertising is mm -hmm. going. So, so property advertising, if you open a newspaper, have a look through it on the weekend, you know, whether it's home builders, um, housing, real estate ads, whatever, it's a huge, huge part of the, uh, the media landscape. So it's very hard to get stories that are negative about uh, the magic pudding of ever-growing house prices to run. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think that's why a book is a good medium to do this in because, you know, whenever, whenever I'm um, talking about these issues, you get big pickup in the ABC. Uh, they love these stories about money laundering and financial crime, um, particularly when it comes to uh, property markets and things like that because they're not dependent upon any of that advertising revenue but it's a hard sell in the commercial media mm. uh and and uh they're not they're not popular stories put it that way <laughs> it's the proverbial fart in the elevator when you start <laughs> saying uh you know what there's a whole lot of dirty money propping up this housing miracle and uh we are literally forcing our children to go to war to buy a house against the cocaine cowboys mm -hmm. so uh you know that that's a big part of people you know use the example of your dad but He's, he's, the news isn't telling him why that house over sure. the road is so yeah. expensive. Um, but younger people are digging around and asking questions and reading uh, different you know, news sites and going to podcasts and reading yep. michaelwest.com.au and things like that. And they're getting a different perspective. True. And they, they know what's going on. But the sad thing is they don't have the levers of power and they don't have the financial power yet either. So their voice isn't really heard in yeah. the same way that a wealthy superannuant is heard when they say, hands off my franking credits and hands <laughs> off my neck gearing. Okay, mate, I promise I'm wrapping up. Uh, I just have a, a few more for you. Uh, when Bradley Hope was on the on the podcast, who famously was completely at the center of the uh, 1MDB scandal, um, which is just an archetypal story of the excesses of offshore finance and financial secrecy and how it just is a cancer on, you know, not only a democracy of a specific country, but just the world. Anyway, I asked him what the red pill of, uh, if you could red pill someone onto what financial secrecy is. And he just said that you could be working in any commercial building in London. Say, for example, you just have a regular job. You go in, there's 30 people on your floor and that building is owned by a vicious Russian kleptocrat and you are inadvertently paying that man money. Um, you're giving him a way to rip off the people in his own country. So forth example, great, like red pill. Everyone can relate to that. You gave one of these as well in your interview with Michael West about the Barangaroo casino, um, in just the heart of downtown, how that is just, it serves one, one, um, it serves one thing, which is to act as a money launderer. So I just want to ask you, in addition to that example, could you give a red, could you red pill the audience on offshore finance and money laundering? Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, uh, you know, there was, there was a big expose uh, last year called the Pandora Papers. 
And what it revealed was the extent to which the trust and company service providers are running rings around, uh, you know, decency, <laughs> you know, integrity, all of these issues. So what, what it kind of showed was that basically if you have access to expensive advice, you can be invisible. You can be financially invisible. You can have trusts set up in the Cook Islands that have things called flea and flight clauses. So you've got this, this trust that holds assets somewhere else, but the, the paper owner of it is in, say, the Cook Islands. And yeah. do you know what? As soon as a law enforcement official or a jilted spouse or a business creditor makes any inquiry about that trust, it vanishes and those trust assets move to another jurisdiction. So you can imagine how this works. There are, there's a shell game being played in the world of offshore centres and people often think when they hear about the Caymans or the Cook Islands or whatever that people are putting their money there. No, 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 it's just the ownership sits there. So the assets will be big hotels in Sydney, farms in Tasmania, you know, Muscle Row Bay, uh, the, the, the Pandora Papers revealed that the Hilton in Sydney was, was owned by a, a fascinating character and it only came out because these documents were leaked to the media. So I think that would be my red pill is, whoa, you know, look at the extent to which this international shell game is being played by very lovely people with great jobs in suits who, if they're not, if they're not uh, you know, held to account, there are enough people out there that are very happy to clip the ticket facilitating yep. this activity. And look, I mean, it could be human trafficking. It could be mm. arms trafficking. It could be drugs. It could be corruption. It could be all of these nefarious things. But at the end of the day, we've got to remember they're profit-motivated crimes and they're only doing it to make money. And there is a class of people out there that are going to be more than happy to ensure that they're not parted from their ill-gotten gains and that's what we've got to that's what we've got to target the the international shell game of money laundering is such that you simply don't know who owns that building down the road that a government department is renting for instance or that hotel or that farm or any of these things i mean we just because of the nature of this this international laundromat too often we don't know. And the fact that it took journalists to tell the country, to tell the government who owned these assets is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, absolutely. And the types of names who are implicated in there as well is just heads of state from seemingly every nefarious country, but also legitimate country um, uh, you can think of. I think the, because I interviewed Nick Shackson as soon as the Pandora Papers was leaked. And he said something like they had gigabytes of PDFs, which is hundreds of thousands, millions of pages, you know, which is like, how many people can you potentially implicate in that much information? It really is absurd. And like uh, mm. I spoke to you off, off air before we started, you know, Jim Henry, Blood Bankers, this is in, this is before um, the the instantaneous nature of online finance cryptocurrency um way more globalization of of finance maybe ramped everything up but he discovered hundreds and hundreds of examples of uh, exactly that you know 
who knows who owns this state asset you know <laughs> and it is it, it can leave you a bit nihilistic and jaded like what the fuck you know what's going on how do i ever have a chance to compete in this world why is it so unfair and you know but man it's sort of like running a race at school and you get down there and you discover that the other kids are using anabolic steroids and the um <laughs> you know the the track where they start is 20 meters in front of yours you know i mean yeah. that's that's the sort of realm that you start to get into when you don't deal with this stuff where uh you know you said it jaded where people just go the, the the game is rigged it's rigged and it's not rigged in my favor and at that point um you know they they mentally check out they don't they don't feel like they want to fight for a society that is like that uh they'll fight to uphold it so you know that's that's the, the you know we we've got to we've got to claw things back and i think tackling that international shell game um is achievable right because there's again there's laws sitting there ready to be passed that set up what's called a, a register of what's called ultimate beneficial ownership a ubo register now that register would mean that if you want to buy if you want the privilege of buying assets in australia tell us who you are mm. tell us who your shareholders are and unless we can trace back and find a real person don't tell us who your shell company is or mm. what uh, foreign jurisdiction you're, you're sitting in, tell us who the human is at the end of that. And when that shareholding or ownership changes, you've got to inform us. You know, that, that should be a basic rule of buying any property in a country like Australia. Mm. And until we enforce that and bring it in and make sure that it works, we're not really serious. We're not really serious about any of this stuff. We're not serious about a fair economy and, and making sure that Australia works for Australians. How do you feel rubbing up against this every single day and especially at the at the scale and the level that you are rubbing up against it? Um, how do you deal with it? How, how do you not just get, you turn into this sort of ball of rage? Like, what the fuck? It's all broken. What am I, you know? Okay, well, that, that's an interesting question. And, and look, i got to confess, part of it is because I'm from an earlier generation that had a fair deal, you know. Like, I went through uni and, you know, HEX was um, pretty low and then we popped out and housing was affordable and, and we had a good run, right? And so I'm just bloody determined that I'm not going to sit there and go, I had a good run, I'm all right, Jack. That is not what Australia means to me. Mm. Man, I mean, you know... Like every Aussie, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a proud Aussie because there's nothing to be proud about getting born in the right spot. I'm a grateful Aussie, you know, right, but to yeah. be born in Australia, particularly, you know, um, to, to, to live through a country that gave you good health care, gave you a tertiary education, no matter what side of the tracks you were born on, gave you good jobs, gave you job security, labor rights, you know, all of this stuff is the cornerstone of a decent society. And when you, get, when you get raised in a society like that and you have opportunities and you go and fulfill your dreams, man, like, you know, you can't be bitter or angry. God, no. What you, what you can be, though, is um, really determined that the next generation coming through should have it equally as good, if not better. Because that's what all of our forebears did, you know. I mean, I mean, stories of war, I've just been in Canberra at the War Memorial, you know, and you go and see the role that stories of war play in building nationhood and binding us together. And why did 
people, why do we celebrate war? We don't celebrate war because we love blood and gore. We celebrate war because it's people sacrificing their own self-interest for the idea of a common good. It's, it's what's encapsulated in that amazing essay, The Tragedy of the Commons, where we have all of these commons, you know. I mean, they, in that essay, that philosophical essay, they use the example of the commons where, you know, in Britain, sort of like a community garden sort of concept. And if you didn't respect the commons and didn't treat it right and put too many cattle on it or whatever, you'd destroy the common because of self-interest. And our common is our democracy, you know, it's our, it's our fairness, it's our system, it's all of these things that are so much bigger than any concept of personal wealth. You know, it's our parks, it's our freedom, it's all, all of this stuff that makes Australia so great. It's a clean environment, all of that. And, <clears throat> you know, if you, if you pursue self-interest at such an egregious scale and rate that you destroy the commons then what have you got left at the end of it? You know, you, you end up... Um, so I, I'm firmly of the view that Aussies don't do that. Aussies always believe in working hard, contributing, and really making sure that that next generation gets equally as good, if not better. And that's why we've had such a good life. That's why our ancestors went and fought wars for this this notion of a fair society. You know, they fought wars against things like communism because they believed in the integrity of the mm. Western financial system. Well, what what is it now? You know, that's our generation's challenge. So, um, I, I yeah, I don't I don't feel embittered or angry. I feel passionate, and and I think. Um, you know, I tried to capture that actually in the book with this, the character profiles that I did of these amazing people that work. You know, if you think about it, these guys with money laundering chops, they could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars very easily, right? Four or 5% for money laundering. And if you have that level of skill and knowledge in that space, you know, you could go and get infinite amounts of money like the character at the start of my book who got murdered. Um, but they choose not to. Right. And why? Because inevitably, when I, um, you know, got to know their character and asked them questions, it turned out that they had this huge sense of gratitude that they came from a great society and a good family and they had all this opportunity and they just feel this huge responsibility to have, you know, they've had an awesome childhood and now they're grown ups and they want to make sure that the next generation of children in particular have a good run um, and a good chance at life. And I can't see how there's any future for any society that devours its children's futures to enrich its retirees. That's just, that's, I mean, it, it sounds so absurd as to be obvious, but I kind of feel like we've, we, we risk straying into that space when we're running policy for people who are, you know, in retirement years and giving them all of these tax breaks. I mean, superannuation is going to cost more money pretty soon than, uh, you know, the tax breaks in super are going to cost the country more than the pension. So the idea that we were setting up super to take strain off the pension is just an absolute sham. We're literally running onshore tax havens for wealthy people who have built up these these asset bases in the onshore tax haven of superannuation. So all this nonsense, which is enriching people who have lived a good life and set themselves up at the expense of the young, I can't sit back and fathom that. I don't think I don't think it's Australian. I don't think it's what we stand for. So 
you know, that's an exciting thing to, to want to fight for. It gives you a purpose in life, right? It gives you, it gives you that intangible thing that we're all searching for, which is kind of meaning and, and the idea that you, the work that you do, hopefully at some level, matters for something. It's, it's amazing. Um, like you said earlier, you were complimenting the UK system because their uh, media did a really good job at holding people to account. Um, you're clearly the media in this uh, scenario with Australia. Uh, do you get the sense that there is any um, good momentum towards holding more people to account and, and, and shaping this future that you really want to see for Australia? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, th I think it's happening. I think it started and uh, it's just building momentum. And look, we the reality is, look, look at demographics, right? I mean, in a democracy, demographics is king because it's where the votes are, the mm. policy goes. So once you have, uh, a, you know, an aging demographic, um, they're, they're going to run policy for their own benefit, and that's what we've seen. But now you've got young people coming through and they're aware and they're educated and they um, care about this stuff, and there's a growing awareness through the middle class, right, because ultimately, as we've seen in America, when these things start to fail, the middle class cops it. And a strong middle class is the secret to a good, balanced, decent society that's kind of stable. When you start eroding the middle class, you get these extremes of, mm. of the rich and or the haves and the have-nots. And then policy just swings from one extreme to the other and you don't get any stability in a democracy. So, you know, we're sort of uh, in that environment where, uh, uh, you know, we're, I think before the middle class, the middle class are waking up now to the fact that inflation and mismanagement and rampant financial crime and corruption is stealing from them. You know, yep. the hidden hand of inflation that takes away the value of your hard work and your diligent savings is a scam, you know, and it's a scam that enriches one class of people. And, uh, you know, so yeah, I I'm, I'm positive. I'm really optimistic. I think, like I said before, people voted for the teals. Part of their thing was anti-corruption. I'm not saying it's a solution to all these issues, but I'm reading that, interpreting that as a symbol that people do care and they're waking up to the fact that we've got things to preserve, but we've got work to do, you know, we're that third generation of kids. Are we going to squander the assets and live a good life and leave nothing behind? Or are we going to pull our socks up and get to work and rebuild this thing? Uh, and, and that's what's going to happen. It has to happen. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, what a beautiful, optimistic uh, message to close out the, the, lucky laundry chat on so i just want to finish with a few personal well one personal question and two that i try to ask every guest um mm. in the book several times uh, and in different contexts you refer to the marriage the magic of serendipity and it's usually in reference to the subject you're speaking about and some amazing moment that happens to them but i wonder in your own life whether there are any great moments of serendipity that stand out as defining oh man so many uh, particularly if you're doing if you're doing big investigations and following stories around the world you're completely reliant on the wonder of serendipity right it's it's the meeting the chance meeting or the introduction or the person that comes along or the scenario and it's one of the beauties of writing non-fiction because you know you have these experiences and you're like oh my god you know, that's, that's the key part of the book or that's the bit I was missing or that's the person right. I needed. So it's, it's really, it's really fun. Like, you know, you, you doing, 
um, work in foreign countries in particular, you go off and you meet people and, uh, you know, you, you have these phenomenal experiences that you can then hopefully build into a body of work like a book that, that pulls together and makes sense. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's serendipity is phenomenal, isn't it? It happens all the time. It's like the power of positive thinking where you're thinking about a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while. And then they suddenly call you on the phone. Like there is, there's something intangible that goes on there. And I'll tell you what, it's the same when you're doing, um, investigative work, you know, like, a lucky break. So in the book, uh, you know, Neil Jeans, who's that investigator who's sitting there in a dark and windowless room, poring over all of these stubs from trades and he's keying them into a computer. And then he goes for lunch one day and sees a sandwich board that says, you know, Lord Pilkington uh, defrauded in US stockbroking scam. And he's like, gets the newspaper, goes back, reads it, and he realises all the companies that he's been keying into his computer for these stock trades are the ones that were involved in this scam. And that was how he ended up in New York um, investigating these big mafia stockbroking frauds. And ultimately the the tip of that was the Jordan Belfort Wolf of Wall Street case, mm. you know, where they were selling, after they'd laundered money through those stocks, they were selling them to... Um, you know, retirees and all the rest of it in a boiler room scam. So serendipity is crucial in financial crime investigations and and all of these things. But man, it's crucial in life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think everyone who's who's had an enjoyable career or fulfilled a dream of any sort has kind of had many people that have mentored them or given them a leg up, and that's. That's the power of serendipity too. When someone comes along and gives you, gives you a um, a break or some guidance or whatever, um, I dedicated dedicated the book to the memory of Joy Geary, who was one of those people. She was the godmother of the Australian anti money laundering community, and um, she helped so many people, myself included. Was so generous with her knowledge and her time and everything, and she just kind of built built this industry from a nascent stage into this this incredible community really so the book in a way is a celebration of her uh because she passed away unfortunately with cancer but uh you know her her presence is still felt and she's uh she's an example of serendipity in human form in the way that she helped so many people out beautiful absolutely wonderful answer i love there's so much uh like positivity and optimism uh, that comes through your messages. It was really nice. Ah, cheers, Ryan. Uh, look, you know, man, and I, I really appreciate the fact that you uh, were interested in the book and interested in these issues and your your knowledge about this stuff is is phenomenal and it just takes all of us to care a little bit, I think, and to um, to 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 care about uh, mm. the commons, you know, to care about society, to care about the next generation. It's It's what Australians do and I think, you know, We've just gone through one of those things as a nation where we got very insular, we got very rich very quickly, and we kind of lost some of these things that make us who we are. And now we've just got to reset the course and get back to those. And, you know, that's up to every single one of us to to be Mm. part of that. Final two questions. I try to ask this to uh, every guest that comes on. The first is, what is a country that you're particularly bullish on looking forward? Bullish on. Whoa, man, I, you know, one that um, has, the, its potential has never been tapped really to the extent that's possible is India. 
So I think, uh, you know, with the extraordinary miracle of what's happened in China, where you've seen half a billion people taken out of poverty, uh, is, is incredible. You know, like we so often look at the rise of China through these paranoid, this paranoid Western prism. Oh my God, there's a challenger to our hegemony. Well, let's not forget that they've taken half a billion people out of poverty, you know, and they've done it through really hard work and, and value adding and all the rest of it. Um, so, you know, the China story is a bit of a miracle, but uh, their system of politics and government is not one that's compatible with the Western model, right? Um, I think that's a sensitive way of saying it, that we're, we're careering headlong into a bit of a cold war <laughs> and a multipolar world again. And potentially we're going to see this cleaving of the economy because the aggressive use of American sanctions uh, is is kind of, look, it's a dangerous game. You push it too far and the economy splits in two and then your sanctions are meaningless. So it's always a bit of a delicate dance. And I think we're right at that point now where Russia is running what's called the SPFS, which is their version of SWIFT. And you've got Iran and North Korea and uh, possibly, you know, behind the scenes, China willing to kind of tie up to that. So for the first time in a long time, you're seeing a viable alternative to SWIFT and the US dollar. And so, uh, you know, if that continues the way it's going, we could see a split back into, uh, you know, from this cohesive globalization that's been a driver of so much wealth over a couple of decades to, boom, you know, a split, broken supply mm -hmm. chains, uh, you know, lower productivity, all of that stuff, right? But that would be very good for India because, uh, you know, I mean, India has uh, amazing massive resources human and, and wealth and everything and for whatever reason they've never quite uh yet uh you know achieved what people thought was possible for india um so yeah i'm really i'm really bullish on india i think it's um a pretty extraordinary country with so much potential and it often gets forgotten in this hyper focus on china but uh, mm -hmm. don't don't count India out, particularly if we start seeing the West going, oh, we've got to diversify away from Chinese manufacturing. Um, mm -hmm. Where are we going to move it? Well, India is a damn good place to put it, right? We've got the quad now. There's a system of government there that's very compatible with the West. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a uh, India bull. Cool. I, I also agree. I think it would be so cool. I have a, uh, a really curious fascination of um india a few guests on the podcast have come on but more from the sort of india as a guru destination spiritual travel uh types perspective unless the economic one um but i remember back in i did my economics degree at uts they were talking up india as being you know the next giant economy I isn't it the case that it's always been touted as this next big you know center of wealth but it keeps sort of failing yeah it's a bit like nuclear fusion isn't it it's always five years away from being the next big thing and always will be as the joke goes well yeah, why I doesn't mean, it? Uh, why doesn't it well look I, th I think i think it's largely corruption like, no, really. like um you know i mean india has has got a big problem with this embedded corruption and uh, you know, like really, if you if you look at what Xi Jinping has done, he's gone down hard on corruption 
in the same way that Lee Kuan Yew went hard on corruption because it's corruption is just the cancer to a growing society. A growing economy and a developing economy is massively um, hungry for capital and it needs foreign investment. So the corruption, if you think about it, is inverted foreign investment. It's it's taking money from developing countries and then moving it out to developed countries to sit there and do nothing. <laughs> so, you know, to sit there in empty homes on the waterfront. Yeah. You know, that's oh that's God. the the horror of corruption is yeah. it's this lost opportunity for developing countries. Whether pure it's waste, Philippines, yeah. or it's pure waste. You know, we've just seen. You know, while we're recording this podcast, two days ago, we've just seen uh, Najib Razak in in. Um, uh, Malaysia get jailed over one MDB, you know, but that was a multi-billion dollar scandal. Mm-hmm. That is and such... they still don't have Jolo. Uh, still don't have Jolo, man, and and you know, still haven't still haven't got all the funds back. You know, the the money's out there somewhere, right? There's allegations in Switzerland and Singapore and all of this stuff, the US. So you know, this is. This is the inverse of foreign aid. It's foreign aid where <laughs> developing countries aid the wealthy. Um, so that's why corruption is such a curse. And you look at look at what Singapore did, the miracle of Singapore, but Lee Kuan Yew had zero tolerance for corruption. You know, mm. and then Xi Jinping is aware of the same thing. He can't allow corruption to get a, you know, that they've that obviously it's still there, um, but they're aggressively going after it with Skynet and Fox Hunt and all these sorts of um, things. So tackling corruption is always central to getting developing countries to make that giant leap, and that's sort of I believe one of the factors that's held India back is that they've never really been able to. Uh, you know, get get that happening. But also one of the other aspects, of course, is, uh, you know, you've got a totalitarian form of government in those two countries that I just mentioned. You know, Lee Kuan Yew was pretty much, you know, it was a single party state in Singapore for many, many years and they just got stuff done and China's the same, right? So they can make these big, difficult calls. And what we've been talking about is the Malays in the West at the moment, the dysfunction because there's no unified vision there's no common good it's it's just everyone pursuing their own self-interest which um can be problematic and and directionless so maybe that's a part of india's malaise as well right you know they're a democracy (laughs) and so so uh you know sometimes with democracies it can be like herding cats and and if Mm. Uh, if people are pursuing too much self-interest, then you will see massive wealth created. So there's a class of people that get mega rich, but it's not evenly distributed, and it's it's uh, you know you still have pockets of extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascinating, love it. Uh, finally, Nathan, if you could witness a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, no language barrier, so a podcast, who would you listen to? Oh man, uh, it'd be Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan just sitting there <laughs> okay, nice. talking about Stratocasters and blues and and guitar and and uh, <laughs> I, I I just sit there and I'd be the sommelier and just pour the wine, you know, <laughs> listen to those two go at it. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a it's a shame we lost Hendrix, isn't it? Because what a what an amazing amazing character and uh, you know he he was such a smart guy. You know, when you look oh, yeah, back really? at the old, oh yeah, yeah, he was a tuned in, very smart guy. He'd actually served in the military in Vietnam and things like mm-hmm. that. So, um, he's kind of 
a complex character and everyone knows him as the psychedelic guy burning guitars at Monterey, but <laughs> he was a very switched on dude, you know, and, and he had a military background as well, which makes him an even more complex character. Mm. And, uh, you know, but he would like, uh, he, he'd sit there cooking his eggs, frying his eggs in his house with his strat on. And he'd be playing guitar while he's cooking eggs. You know, that was the extent to which he, he was just obsessed with with music. And uh, he he was, uh, yeah, I'd I'd uh, I'd happily sit there and just listen to those two chat away. Two two of the greats of of guitar based music and Stratocaster playing. Amazing. And forgive me, I don't know the other guy. Where, where, where's he from? Stevie Ray Vaughan is a Texan blues musician who uh, is was another absolute firebrand, and he he just is an incredible guitar player. You might have, if ever you listened to Wide World of Sports, um, you okay. know, in, in the nineties, and they'd go to an ad break, they'd have Scuttle Button playing uh, this, this incredibly fast classic guitar riff. Uh, but yeah, he he was a phenomenal musician. He had a struggle with alcohol. And then he came back, recorded a blistering album, um, won a Grammy, you know, because blues music sits off there in a uh, pretty, you know, it's a pretty bit of a niche thing. And then occasionally you get these artists that cross over into the mainstream. He had his moment. He did that. He'd been off at a gig with Clapton and there was a helicopter taking them out. And Clapton said, oh, you take my seat on the helicopter because he had to be on a flight. So he jumped on the helicopter and it crashed. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so we lost him in his prime, basically. Um, but mm. boy, oh boy, another phenomenal musician. A moment of serendipity of a different kind for Clapton there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd say I'd say there's some survivor's guilt there with Eric Clapton over that one, you know, just... Can uh, imagine, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, you know, he, he's a... He's a. I don't know, man, maybe, maybe in some ways it's good that we... It's not good, but oh, so good. these are these iconic <laughs> these iconic musicians that get stolen from us in their prime. We mm. don't get to see them go and do an unplugged album and then right. do, a, do an advertisement for an orange juice brand or a bank. You know, sometimes uh, maybe maybe they're legends because or we just them, lose like, them, whittle away into frustrated old man politics. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> for sure. Lovely. Well, look, Miss Lynch. Um, Thank you so much. On the subject of old man politics. (laughs) I did. There's uh, no straight line between it, Um, but (laughs) thank you for um, being so generous with your time to give me uh, all of this time to speak about, uh, yeah, money laundering in Australia. And also I think um, you really opened up on a lot of broader topics as well. So uh, yeah, unbelievable. Thank you very much, mate. I appreciate it greatly. Thanks, Ryan, man. Really, really good chatting. And um, I hope to see you in either Australia or Sweden soon and we'll go flightboarding together. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you again, Nathan. You're an absolute legend. It was a thrill to record that with you. And I would encourage all of you listening to go out and read or listen to The Lucky Laundry because it does sort of go through like a spy novel, but it's this great, it's done in this great narrative journalism style. And it's got the real world drama the truth is stranger than fiction drama but what is my hopes for this podcast my ambition for this podcast it is to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities no matter where it is in the world that you're listening in from so as you've heard me plea before that's not a straightforward thing to accomplish because there isn't a category or a genre for eclectic curiosities the categories are more defined broadly tech comedy news general interest, crime, 
But eclectic curiosity is the genre that I'm trying to corner. But since this genre doesn't exist, the best you can do for me, the second best, but the best you can do for me is to pump that good juice into the algorithm via reviews, via subscriptions, via telling all of your friends and family about it and encouraging them to do the same. The more energy that's put towards in the general direction of a curious worldview, the better it will be able to rank. And hopefully one day we can get the eclectic curiosity category cemented. However, until then, please leave nice reviews. Please tell someone who might be interested in this show about it. And of course, thank you so much to Nathan Lynch.